When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we kick off our coverage of the 2022 Australian Open. Of course, over the next few days, we will try to preview that event from every angle possible. We'll talk about our men's and women's contenders for the title, talk about the dark horse picks we think might do some damage, talk about the Americans we'll be watching most closely. Then, of course, once they're released, we'll break down the draws for the men and women. We'll recap qualifying once it's completed as well. All of that content going to be found either here on the Great Shout podcast feed or over over on our mini break podcast feed of course you can find links to all of our episodes wherever you listen to your shows or on our website crackrackets.com of course on this episode you're going to hear from a returning champion to our crack racket shows tennis abstracts jeff sackman joining me today to talk about the most interesting americans to watch at this 2022 australian open of course it's such a fascinating time right now in american tennis the depth on the men's side at levels we haven't seen since the 1990s and of course isner still hanging around you get other veterans in the mix the jack socks dennis kudlas marcos girones of the world stevie johnson's starting to play some of their best tennis again but of course it's this next wave of American men's players from Mackie McDonald all the way through to Jensen Brooksby Brandon Nakashima of course you've got the Opelka Tiafo Fritz Paul generation in the mix Stefan Kozlov looking to capitalize on his late 2021 season success with a wild card into this Australian Open so many fascinating men's storylines of course women's side has always had depth but with no Serena Williams in the draw who will be the last American standing will it be a Pagula a Stevens a Madison Keys type veteran Danielle Kozlov Collins, or will it be that next-gen wave of talent on the American women's side? Of course, Sonia Kennan returning to health, def- uh, not defending, but 2020 Australian Open champion. She's back in the draw. You've got Coco Goffs of the world, and Lee's, Amanda Anisimova's. Point being, it's a fascinating time to be an American tennis fan. Plenty of things to watch here. And of course, no better person to help break it all down than Jeff Sackman. Of course, I also wanted to pick Jeff's brains about the latest and greatest things happening at Tennis Abstract. Simply put, the best resource for anyone who wants to follow the game of tennis closely and with some semblance of intellectual, uh, or some sort of intellectual backing to your opinions. You got to turn to Jeff for all of the numbers. So we talk about that at the beginning. I also wanted to get his take on Novak Djokovic. Of course, that is the storyline at this 2022 Australian Open, so probably going to ask all of the people who join us about it until we have a conclusive answer to his status. But then, of course, we get into the Americans, talk about the most interesting ones we'll be watching closely and have as much fun as we always do whenever Jeff joins the show. So without further ado, enough with the plugs. You can find all the content at CrackRackets.com, but let's get to it. Here is my conversation talking the most interesting Americans Americans at the 2022 Australian Open with the one and only Jeff Sackman. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Joining us on the podcast once again today is a returning champion to our Cracked Racket shows. Of course, you know he's got all of the numbers, even if podcasting with him disrupts your slumbers. And don't let his good looks and his charm distract from all the fantastic work he's doing at Tennis Abstract. It is retired podcaster Jeff Sackman joining us on the show today. Jeff, hey, great shot. Welcome back. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I feel like you confused me with someone else for some of that intro, but I'll, I'll pretend like you didn't. That was, that was very kind of you. You're right. The, the charm, that's not you. That's someone else. But everything else, Thank I think, you. holds up. I appreciate your dedication to the truth, Alex. <laughs> you know, I, I do what I can. I won't lie. Was I hurt when I found out that there was a Gil Gross podcast coming up in your future? Yes, I thought you'd never step out on this thick-eyebrowed loving man. Um, but, you know, again, from one thick-eyebrowed host to another, clearly you've got a type. I almost worked that into the intro. I was like, ah, eh, I'll save that for the next episode. Uh, but it is good to have you back. And, again, the work you did at Tennis Abstract this offseason, before we get into today's exercise, we hinted at it last time. You got deep in the 1910s, 1920s, my friends. Are you, I feel like right now you're probably part of the Habsburg Empire or you're getting ready for World War I with where your mindset is at. Yeah, I've been going through World War One. My goal, well, it's, it's funny, going through the last year, I, I keep moving the goalposts on myself. When I started looking into women's tennis history, I was thinking like, okay, well, we, we don't have complete records on the whole open era. So let's fill in the gaps. Let's finish the open era. Then when I got through with the open era, I was thinking, well, who's the two most important players at this point? It's Billie Jean King, it's Margaret Court, and they both started playing in the early 60s. So am I just going to sit here and not know what Margaret Court did from 1961 to 1967 or Billie Jean King from 1961 to 1967? Of course we have to know. So I went back a little further, and then I got there. I started getting interested in those players, and it's like, okay, I'll go back to after World War II. And then, you know, over the course of a year and and serious repetitive stress injuries to my fingers um i i just kept going back further and further and now there are um, women's tennis results back to i think 1915 on tennis abstract so i'm, I'm through world war world war one the world wars are are easy um i mean tragic at the time but now they're they're easy for me because there's not any tennis in europe when world wars are happening mm-hmm. uh so there's a lot less work to do it's just a bunch of american tournaments but I'm now seeing the other side of that, and um, yeah, there's a, a, a huge amount of stuff at, at Tennis Abstract, and one of my projects for this year, I'm not giving away the big headline project for another few weeks after, until after the Australian Open, but I'm going to really dig into that, this data and, and come up with some stuff that I don't think anyone else has ever done before, so lots to look forward to this year. There's nothing I enjoy more than rolling over every morning in bed and looking at my Twitter And I suppose that is the least healthy thing you can do. It's part of the habit. And I see a Jeff Sackman, Bill Tilden related tweet or just some sort of fantastic newspaper clipping. And just it's a great way to start the day. And so it has been very refreshing to have in the what's that called? The Twitter, uh, you know, the list of tweets. Twitterverse. 
No, I, yeah, I forget a, the, the dashboard or whatever it's called. Yeah, it's great to have on the dash. The news feed, there it is, on the feed um, to start the day. And, yeah, I, all I heard there was an excuse to have you back on in a couple of weeks to talk about that project. Is there any outlying stat, any one thing, if you're going to give me one big takeaway from the nineteen, you know, 1950 to 1960 results, what would it be? 1950 to 1960? 1915, excuse me. 1915, okay. It's, I'll give you one that I tweeted a hint to this. Is, is There were a lot of really lopsided scores. I mean, even apart from people like Helen Wills who would just blast through opponents. And I've seen news reports that are like, this match was six love, six love, and the opponent lasted 14 minutes. Uh, and that, that's not even uncommon. Like there, there's one report, of, I think when Helen Jacobs came back for a tournament in the early 40s, um, she played her first three rounds in one day, which what that itself wasn't that strange, but she played three rounds in one day and her total time on court was an hour. Um, and that's, that's amazing. It's not even that unusual. That's the crazy thing is that they, they played so fast and the best players were so good. But despite all that, they um, there were a lot of deuces. That This is something that, I mean, you only hear about it when it happened. No, no one's going to write a news report about, you know, Helen Wills beat this poor girl and only lost five points. But it was really common for two players to end up with a score of like six love, six one. And every game but one or two would go to deuce, even against Helen Will. So it, it, I wonder whether there was more of a mental aspect to it then or people were just afraid of beating someone like Helen Wills. I don't. I can't really explain it, but it's this weird mix of very tight games and very lopsided matches that I feel like, like the further back you go in history, the more of that you get. Conspiracy Jeff, the Helens had to cover the spread. And, you know, you got to make it entertaining, but it got to cover that spread in 1915. The bookies were all getting after it. I learned two things there. A, if I want my future daughter to have success as a professional player, name her Helen, that I'm locking that in. Yeah. B, you might be the best person for me to ask this question to, and it's one of my theories, and I'm going to stick with it till the end of time. If you put... I'm not going to say 2021 Alex Gruskin because I don't move quite like I did, but I'm going to say first semester, senior year, 2016, uh, I guess, fall of 2016 Alex Gruskin with his modern racket and his modern strings and his witchcraft of a two-handed backhand into 1915. Am I a multi-time Grand Slam champion? Am I knocking these guys off? Well, first off, I have to I have to tell you, I know you've been interviewing too many college coaches lately because you have asked me this before. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but now you've done the research. I, I have done more research. I have I have cloned you. I have gone back in time with Alex too, and and run <laughs> several hundred experiments. Now I have thought about it more though, and I I said last time that no, you don't you don't stand a chance, and I I think I stick with that. No. Um, yeah, I. And I would say the same about myself. It's not a criticism of you. I don't know. I don't know how good a player you'd have to be with a modern racket to go back and dominate. But I mean, for one thing, the wooden the wooden racket doesn't take that much away from your serve. Um, it makes it harder. But the best player, somebody like Bill Tilden, was serving precisely and serving hard. I don't know whether we're talking like. 80 miles an hour or 110 miles an hour, but they were, they were serving big. So 
I don't think you're going to win a lot more. You're not going to break them a lot more than you would break like a, a good division one player these days. Uh, Fair. Obviously. I, well, I was going to say, I think my biggest concern, and I know you've run the analytics on this, is the fact that I'll be playing in khakis. Like, that could be an issue for me. The polo shirt, I've never enjoyed playing in a collar. Never brings out my best tennis. I like I like playing in a collar. I, I played it at uh, Longwood in Boston, which is has a ton of grass courts and a long storied history. And there's like a dress code there, so you have to play in a collar. I, I enjoyed it. I'd never done it before, but it, it, it made me feel both classy and skilled at the same time. Oh, my senior year of high school, our head coach, whom I love to this day, was determined that we would wear collared shirts because we were going to be very good and he wanted to beat everyone while looking classy. He was very funny in his pitch, and so he convinced the team, and I was crushed. I was like, come on, guys. I was like, this is such a mistake. Uh, but nevertheless, we wore the collared shirt. And thus, I suppose I would not be good enough to win the 1915 Wimbledon, although I'm still holding out hope. Uh, and yes, we will continue to explore that. I'm sure the neck we're going to continue to explore that whenever I have you until the answer is yes, because, you know, I'm nothing if not persistent. But with all of that said, surprisingly, that is not the reason we wanted to have you on the show today. Of course, it's crazy to think the Australian Open starting next week. Whether we like it or not, whether Novak Djokovic will be there or not, and by the way, it's in the Tennis Channel Podcast Network edict. We have to spend some time in the first 20 minutes talking about Novak Djokovic, talking about whether he will or won't be in the draw. But what I wanted to do on today's show is talk with you about something different than what we normally focus on, and I'm sure there will be some ELO rating talk, and I'm sure eventually I'm going to ask you for some predictions but I wanted to talk about the Americans and the most interesting Americans entering this 2022 Australian Open because, of course, if you look at the men's rankings, and we talked about this all offseason, the American men are as deep as they have ever been since the 1990s. And while the success at the top, you don't have a Sampras, you don't have an Agassi, a Courier, even an early Michael Chang, you have a bunch of guys nipping at the bit. And a particularly young class of Americans, from Mackie McDonald all the way through to the Brandon Nakashima, Jensen Brooksby's of the world, who feel like they have some staying power on the men's side. Of course, on the women's side, with the return of Amanda Nisimova, title winner in week number one, and Lee's continued rise last season, Jessica Pagula, one of the standout stars of the year, and just, again, the depth in American women's tennis. I think it has been a staple of women's tennis over the past couple of decades. It's a fascinating time right now for the Americans. With all of that said, Jeff, I don't think, I mean, you haven't been particularly vocal about the Novak Djokovic stuff on Twitter. I think that's because I would imagine, knowing you like I do, your view on this pretty clear cut. Give me your take. Is he in in the draw? Is he not? How does it affect the ELA? Well, listen, you just said you know me so well that you have a pretty good idea of what my take is. What do you think my take is? I imagine you are just done with Novak Djokovic. You're like, why is he in the draw? Uh, this is stupid. We're compromising public health for a tennis tournament. Uh, he had the chance to get vaccinated. He didn't. I'm sorry. You lose. That's a reasonable enough position. I uh, I would just go cut straight to the this is stupid. Uh, <laughs> a setting aside all the other considerations. I... Uh, I, I feel like the more you dive into the details, the more you can get sucked in and we could spend the whole hour talking about this as I'm sure you have with other uh, unsuspecting guests, but <laughs> it's, it, 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 it seems like it's gotten so complicated out of nothing. Like mm-hmm. 
whether or not there should have been an exemption for Novak, whether or not Australia wanted it bad enough, they would make an exception, they would make up special rules for him, whatever the case is, this should have gotten hashed out before he got on a plane. And it's just, it's just such a distraction. Like every, every time this stuff happens, I, I don't understand how tennis keeps getting just overwhelmed by news stories that are off the court BS. And I mean, some of some of the BS is, you know, valid geopolitical concerns. Like I'm not, I'm not calling like the Peng Shui case BS, but it's it, it's off the court stuff, and it absolutely consumes tennis media for sometimes weeks on end. And I'm glad we're talking about that case. Um, I'm glad of some other off court stuff we've talked about other, over the years, but it drives me nuts how the tennis media will drop everything, including their coverage of tennis, to cover these stories that really don't matter. I mean, the, the, what I try to think about when this stuff comes up is how will we talk about this in three years or five years or 10 years? And even with Novak at 20 slams, with this being potentially a, a difference maker in, in the all-time GOAT debate, like in five years, will this be a bigger deal than the default to Carreño Busta? I mean, I, I don't think so. I think, uh, it, especially if he doesn't play, it'll be this gap in his record. People will know why it's there. But did he miss slam number 21 because of this? Not as much as he missed it because of that default. Not as much as he missed it because, you know, he got to some other finals and lost. So I think in five years, this is a stupid historical footnote. And we'll all wonder why we were consumed by it for a week when there were dozens, if not hundreds, of interesting tennis matches going on. Probably hundreds since the qualifying week. But So two things I, off of that. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. A, no, please. Conspiracy Jeff, strong in this podcast. He's burying the Carreno Busta story by not getting vaccinated. I... I think Novak Djokovic has done crazier things. Like, I'm going to throw that as a 10% chance of likelihood. I, I, I would give that, Cra you know, again, that's the, you know, that's the ELO for that. Um, crazier things than what? Then, well, then, you know, get, not getting vaccinated to bury him hitting Karina Busta in the throat. Like, he just doesn't want anyone talking about that story anymore. We're not, Jeff. I think that's the <laughs> conspiracy theory here. Is oh, that I don't think that's going to work. I think people, people will be talking. No, I'm serious. People will yeah. be talking about that for as long as they're arguing about the greatest of all time. You're that's, right. It, it, okay, if, if Novak goes on to win 25 slams, then maybe not. But if if he ends up within one or two of someone else, like that's that's going to be a story in every it, – every instance of this debate for a generation or two and if he doesn't play the australian open then it's it's forgotten about i mean nadal has missed slams i mean remember when people were speculating that nadal was missing parts of seasons because of a, a silent ban yeah like, we don't we don't really talk about that anymore i mean probably rightfully so it probably was just a stupid conspiracy theory but i mean that was sort of a big story not not in the press the way that that the novak story is right now but we've pretty much forgotten about that in I mean, I, I know this from looking back at history. Generally, it isn't a story when people don't show up for slams. Like, it, maybe it should be, but we talk about the matches that get played and the results of those matches. We don't talk about the matches that didn't happen. Yeah, very, very true. And again, this is a random note. Um, I have been fortunate enough. To, and they, this is how you know they're going deep in the Rolodex on this Djokovic story and then everyone else has taken as I've gotten asked to do some TV appearances. And it was... 
I don't know if this is funny, but to me it was hilarious. The lead-in segments to me, Jeff, were Ian Bremmer on the decline of American democracy, a reporter on the ground in Kazakhstan, and now let's go to Alex Gruskin on Novak Djokovic. <laughs> Alex, you know, you're, they, she, you know, he goes, Novak's mom uh, said this is his greatest victory, uh, greater than any victory on the court. Do you agree? And I was like, wait, can we go back to the democracy thing? I've got some follow-ups. And, you know, thankfully I didn't say that because it was time number one. But that's all I could think is like, am I not going to get a question on the decline? I've got three minutes on Kevin McCarthy in me. Um, but, no, it's, I mean— Everything you said resonates with me, Jeff, and one reason I also want to ask you on about this is you made a very, I think, pertinent point of how is this not all figured out before you get on the plane? I won't lie. I have not done much international travel in my life, and the times I have traveled internationally, I was not the person taking care of all the visa and immigration stuff. It was either my father or when I was traveling with my school. That is the sort of thing you clear up before you get there, right? Like this sort of visa miscommunication, and a lot of it comes back to, and I've made this point, many have made this point, how Craig Tiley will have a job after all of this will be quite the question. But how is that not figured out before you get on the plane? Yeah, I mean, and I don't know whether that means that people didn't do their job beforehand or it's just Australian politicians who saw the opportunity to just pose a distraction i mean that that then sure. you know if you want to tie it back into the decline of american democracy wow we're really staying on track here it's <laughs> it, it's at least that, it's america it, it, hey at least it's america um this is i was gonna say this is straight out of trump's playbook but it's not just trump's playbook it's 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 the idea that politicians want to distract from their failures whether they're to blame for the failures or not whether it's a high unemployment rate or, or covid restrictions or whatever it is that's controversial the best way to hide it is to create some other controversy and if scott morrison or whoever else is is it has things at stake in australia sees the opportunity to bury something unpopular with something they can you know get a slam dunk on then it's a really hard thing for a politician to resist it just sucks for everybody a it sucks for the people who get slam dunked on and b it sucks for those of us who get to live through that news cycle especially if we remember what it is that they're trying to bury yeah it's again very much resonates with me everything you are saying jeff and so as saga continues to unfold, we still don't know. Uh, just to put the end piece on it, how's the top five ELO change if he is not in the draw? I imagine, by the way, Sinner's got to be near that top five by the by the percentages, and you know, that's not this podcast. I, he's in my top five. I think by the odds, he's like number six right now. But what do the ELO look like with and without Djokovic? I have, let's, let me see if I ran it after this week i know bef- before i updated with the with week one results um mm-hmm. with djokovic medvedev and djokovic are basically tied in the hardcore elo ratings and medvedev has a very minor edge so i, I think the results were like 30 percent Med- medvedev for the title 26 percent or 27 percent djokovic for the title and then zverev around i want to say 20 or 22 sure. and then if djokovic doesn't play it becomes 40% Medvedev, 30% Zverev. And then, yeah, Alcaraz and Sinner are, I want to say, fifth and sixth. Um, it, it, it That starts to depend a lot on how the draw shakes out. But without knowing the draw, yeah, they're they're in there. And Alcaraz might be a little bit high right now because 
Elo doesn't do a great job if someone ends with a with a winning streak like Alcaraz did at the next gen finals. So he might be a little high, but I don't think Sinner is. There's no ex, there's no there's no good reason to look at Sinner's Elo rating and say, oh, he didn't quite deserve that because he he did flat out. Um, here we go. Here are the I don't have the numbers with Djokovic, but through week one, um, Medvedev is 39%, Zverev is 29%, followed by Sinner, then Sitsipas, then Alcaraz, then Rude. Um, those are your six favorites if Djokovic doesn't play. And then if Djokovic does play, knock everybody down one step except for Medvedev. Sure. And that's interesting, Berrettini falling behind those other guys. That said, I mean, anecdotally, and I obviously metric-wise, it does make sense. So that's interesting to hear. But with all that said, let's talk Americans at the 2022 Australian Open. That's a hot intro there um, for all of you (laughs) listeners. That's why it's always great to get Jeff back on the show. I asked you to come up with your five most interesting Americans entering the 2022 Australian Open. I gave you no other parameters. Men's players, women's players could be whatever the sort of player you are interested in entering this event. With that in mind, let's get into the list. Number one player Jeff Sackman is most interested in from an American perspective entering the year's first Grand Slam. Men or women? Uh, either way, whichever you're most. Just give me number one on the list. Corda. Oh, you know what's fascinating is you are not the first person to say that. And he was not on my list. So give explain to me. Well, I mean, you did have Nelly Corda on your show. You could have seen that coming. <laughs> you know, he's, well... I don't know whether this is the slam, but we've, first of all, he's had an interesting career for such a young player. He had his, one of his first breakthroughs. Didn't he make the fourth round at the French? Uh Um, Basically coming out of nowhere. Like people knew he was a prospect, but absolutely nobody thought that was the moment he was going to make the breakthrough. So the fact that he, he didn't have a huge end of the season. um, He the people who were getting excited about Corda, like they, they, I feel like some of them kind of forgot about him in the last six months, but I, I can completely see him, you know, just smashing his way back into the American consciousness here. Like he, he's going to do that sometime. I don't think it's going to be a gradual like quarterfinals at two fifties and semifinals at five hundreds. It, it's not going to work like that for him. He's going to make a semifinal at a slam or win Indian Wells or something. And then, He's going to be 22 and people are going to realize this is the guy. So I don't know whether this is when it's going to happen, but I mean, if you're, if you're looking for players to be interested in, there's a lot of Americans, especially on the women's side, you can expect good things from, but I'm not sure that looking at the the top women, I see anybody who I think is, is ready to make a major breakthrough. Uh, but Corda is absolutely. So, I mean, he, he, he would be my top pick to go the furthest among the American men, although I have to point out, being the you know provider of the ELOs, that he's a little bit behind Taylor Fritz mm-hmm. in the hardcore ELO rating. So if I go strictly with the numbers, then he's fractionally less likely to make it to, say, the fourth round of the quarterfinals than mm-hmm. Taylor Fritz is. Yeah, you know, again... Would we be doing 20 minutes on Jensen Brooksby right now if he was in the tournament? Probably. Um, and then another 20. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'd keep you here till 9 p.m. Um, but, you know, with Sebastian Corda, it is fascinating because you look at the numbers for him last season, you know, 246 uh, break percentage is the the highlight number that was I believe top twenty amongst top fifty players. I think even top fifteen amongst top tw- uh, 
amongst top 50 players. 31 wins on the ATP Tour, 31 and 18 overall. Anytime you're winning over 60% of your matches, you're moving up the rankings. He was able to do so throughout the course of the season, reaches a career high number 38 at the end of October, enters the year at number 40. Of course, he made the Delray final last season, but then he didn't play the Australian Open. So these are low-hanging fruit for him to pick in terms of building his ranking. This Australian Open, getting one win even, will help him out. But if you can get two, three wins, now you're talking about a top 30, top 25 push from him. The interesting number, and again, low-hanging fruit being the operative uh, term here, is the hold percentage. He was at 80.9 last season. It's a little better than the average of top 50 players, 80.6%, although it's notable that he ranked 29th amongst top 50 players uh, in hold percentage, despite having a slightly above average number there. Of course, you look at him from a size perspective, a foundational perspective, there's no reason he can't be top 20, top 15 from a hold percentage perspective. The plus one shots are there on both the forehand, backhand wing. I think he's both a willing and comfortable volleyer. The second serve hangs up. Like, that's the big thing for him, and he wins only 50.5% of his second serve points last season. I, it reminds me of young Tsitsipas uh, f- uh, from a movement perspective. Tsitsipas was a little stiff when he was 19, 20, 21 years old. I think Korda is as well, but I don't think foundationally he's a bad athlete. I just think he's a young athlete. That said... Like, to me, the barometer of success for Sebastian Corda, particularly given many of the health struggles he's dealt with early in his career, is just like, give me another 52 weeks. Give me another 60 matches or 50 matches where you're winning over 60% of them. You're sustaining your top 50 ranking. Yeah, I'd like a top 30 push. I don't need top 20, top 10 from him this season. I need health. And then I just need to see the typical growth on serve that I think you'd like to see from any young player. I don't know. Maybe that's why I'm not irrationally excited for him. I just don't, I don't see the big leap coming from him this season, but uh, I guess perhaps I'm wrong. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, you, you've taken a stance against mine. So probably, <laughs> yeah. uh, I did. And no, you, you could be right. I don't disagree with anything, with anything you're saying. And, sh- and clearly his game has a ways to go. I've, we've just seen him, even this early in his career, we've seen him go on streaks, whether it's the his French Open debut or winning Delray, uh, quarterfinals in Miami last year, winning Parma on clay. I mean, not really high-level competition there, but I mean, th- this dude won a clay court tournament um, that he probably didn't care that much about. That's a big breakthrough right there. It's It, it just seems like... like yeah, I agree it would, it would be a solid step forward for him to give us a a good 52 weeks on tour and even just solidify the ranking, let alone move it up. But I don't think that's the kind of player he's going to be. I think, I think we're going to see some ups and downs and the the downs might keep him from being a number one someday, but the ups are going to mean, I mean, I hate looking at a, at a a player, his age and saying, I think he's going to win a slam, but I can't help looking at this player and thinking he's going to win a slam. So like I say, it's not going to, I don't think that slam is going to be right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if we get a couple really big runs from him this year. And I mean, chaos abounds down under right now. So why not?
No, it's fascinating because the rise of American men's tennis was one of the storylines to end last season, and it wasn't Korda. It was Fritz at Indian Wells, Opelka uh, in Canada, Tommy Paul winning his first title at the end of last season, Nakashima back-to-back finals in Los Cabos in Atlanta, of course, Brooksby making the semifinals in D.C., winning the 6-1 first set like he meant it against Novak Djokovic at the U.S. Open. Obviously, you have a Cressy final here to start 2022 as well, and boy, would I love to hear your thoughts on Cressy. Maybe we'll get to him in your list, but like we weren't talking about Korda, and it's interesting you talk about the the growth in his game. Again, I'm going to disagree with you. If Sebastian Corda does not get a lick better at tennis, I still think he can be a top 10 player. I think for him, the answer is the physicality. I don't think that he has that element to him yet that's required to be a top 10 guy in men's tennis. And by the way, he's not even 22 years old yet. Doesn't turn 22 till July. That physicality will come. To me, that's why that's the biggest question is that's the missing piece. He already hits his backhand, I would say top five amongst ATP tour backhands, but you know, again, yes, the forehand, he'll get better as a volley or the second serve will get better. But I just think those are things every player will improve throughout the course of their career. I don't really have questions about Corda's game. I just, it's just, for me, a physicality question. And so you're right. He, I mean, that's why he's so interesting, because I think he's got the game to have success already. But when, when you think about the guys with potential physical limitations then those are often the players who have pretty severe ups and downs and those are maybe the types of players we should be particularly uh, attentive to during slams is that's when you get a day off between matches and yes sure. best of five is a whole different set of challenges so that that could that could weigh more heavily than having the days off but i mean it, it goes both ways if, if he gets hot early in the tournament and you know wins some matches in straight sets then that's not really much worse than playing best of three so it's it's easier to make a run to say the quarterfinals at a slam than it is to i don't know let's say win shanghai i don't know if there will be even be a shanghai in 2022 but winning winning six matches in a row uh, in on six consecutive days like i think that might be more demanding for somebody like him than reaching the quarterfinals in australia unless you know somebody pushes him to five sets on wednesday of week one i mean you never know about that kind of thing but um but what what makes the physicality so important these days is just how tough the week in week out grind is. Mm-hmm. So that's where you'll see players make a run and then you know re- withdraw from a tournament and then retire in the second round and then struggle for a couple of weeks and then make another run. And it is true; it's hard for those guys to make the top ten. Uh, and I mean, some players never really bounce back from that. So maybe he'll develop that down the road. Maybe he won't. But I mean, I feel like you don't need to have that to be worth watching right i mean that, that's basically what happened with bernard bernard tomich he's yeah. he gave us those big runs early in his career he didn't really back it up on tour he was better on tour then than he is now obviously but um for him it was a totally different set of issues than i think corda has but i think it's the same general idea the talent was there you could turn it on for a couple of weeks and, and turn in a big result and yeah i mean i, I let's bet on corda like i like we might retrospectively bet on a 21-year-old Bernard Tomic and then hope for something better from Korda down the line. Yeah, no, I mean, Tomic was the original Medvedev. God, talk about a guy who could do so many different things on the court, his feel, and then he was 6'5", 6'6", could crank serves. You just, yeah, you wish he was locked in uh, when he was 18, 19, 21 years old. But that's a story for a different time. 
I'm going to get to the number one player on my list now, and I think you knew this was coming when I tweeted out a month ago, however long it was, that I think— Let me guess. Are there five letters in her name? <laughs> you, Yes. I think you did a better job. Well, I don't know. I think we did an equal job, me giving your take on Novak Djokovic, you being able to guess my first player. It is Ann Lee, of course, who was very, very strong. 10, the 2021 season makes, you know, uh, or wins the title in Tenerife quarterfinals, Cormayor, and, you know, semifinals to start off her season. And Melbourne now, you know, didn't rack up the most impressive wins throughout that run, but, you know, uh, certainly racked up wins at the WTA tour level, has worked her way all the way up to number 42, I believe, in the WTA ELO rankings, number 44, a career high for her in the WTA rankings right now. When I watch Ann Lee play, it's just a ball of explosion. Like, just every ball explodes off of her racket, and her ability to use her quickness to get to the ball, take it early on the rise, beat you to the spot— there's a slingshot element to the game as well. Again, it's just everything on the court comes very easy to Ann Lee. And when you look at the numbers for her last season, yeah, the hold percentage, 69.3%. That lags a bit behind other top 50 players. But the 391 break percentage, that's a top 10 number right away on the women's uh, top amongst top 50 players on the women's tour. And I understand given her size, maybe with the bigger serves, it becomes a little bit more difficult for her. But Anley's game passes the eye test with flying colors. Everything comes so smoothly. She's a comfortable and willing volleyer, but that's not when she's at her best, of course. It's when she's at the baseline. We just didn't get to see her healthy uh, at many of the slams last season. And you look overall, Australia, when she was healthy, third-round loss to the GOAT, Arena Sabalenka. You know, wins her first-round match at Roland Garros before getting knocked out by Svitolina. First-round loss at Wimbledon to Podoroska, but wasn't able to play that, you know, that many events between, I believe it was, I want to say, March and May, uh, or the end of May due to an injury. Uh, you know, disappointing that U.S. Open loss for her, certainly first round to Kutseva. But I'm telling you, Jeff, Ann Lee might end this year as the number one ranked American. I just, from an, I, I just think her game is ready to explode. I know we did this on Twitter and I, I, I want to, I want to devise like a very simple, like, uh, like a, a ranking predictor where you take sure. like every 21 year old or how, is she 21? Uh, uh, I yeah, think so. Yeah. 21. 20. Yeah. If you take every 21 year old within a certain ranking range, see where they end up the next year and then run a simulation for everyone in the top 100, see what their range of possible outcomes is a year later and once you do enough of those you'll end up with basically not just a predicted ranking but a sense of like what's the likelihood that like you say Ann Lee becomes the number one American or what's the likelihood that Ann Lee is top 30 or something uh, and I, I think I said on Twitter that it, it might be one percent and I think even that's high and it's not I'm, that's not a knock on Ann Lee it's just an enormous thing you're suggesting. I mean, uh, so many things have to go right. And to me, the the headline fact about Ann Lee is that she just hasn't played top competition yet. She's got five matches in her career against players ranked better than number 20. Um, she's lost all five. She's won one set in those five matches. That was his high break against Kvitova. And I would guess that if she did play 20 or 30 matches against top 10 players, she wouldn't lose them all. Um, she she has the game to hang with those players. But 
I, I just think, I think you're dream casting based on someone who looks very good at challengers and two fifties. And it's a really tempting thing to do. And maybe she's three years away or five years away from being the number one American. Um, but I, I just don't, I feel like every, all of your takes on Ann Lee are like, they're all 50% too far for me. <laughs> I, I want to say, yeah, she's great. I love the way she plays. I want to see more. I want to see how much she can improve. And to me, that means like best case, maybe she's the number four American at the end of the year. That would be a nice big step. Maybe she's, maybe she's top 30. Um, that might be even a little bit too much, but I'd be willing to go with that. So I'll definitely be watching. I just think it feels like we should be having this conversation in another year or two, but I know, I know we've got to be the tennis hipsters here and have this conversation now, preferably three years ago, but it feels like a better <laughs> conversation for 2024. Always better to be a year early than a year late. I was talking about this with Chris Halioris, who we do all of our college tennis pods with and is like you is very good at running the numbers, AKA excellent at, at Excel. It's a skill I lack. I really should have paid more attention in those classes. But I would love to see what, from an efficiency number standpoint, is the most optimal schedule for Ann Lee to take another rankings jump this year. And if you're extraordinarily bored come late February, early March, which I know you never are, Jeff, and you want to run the numbers, what does the ideal, you know, what is the most efficient schedule for rising the rankings? I'm curious what that would look like. And I'm curious how many players actually use those sorts of metrics in crafting their schedules. Well, I've, I've looked at that a little bit, and it's it's a really, really hard question um, over the course of a full season I mean, for a million reasons. And since we we only have a limited amount of time left, I'm not going to spell them all out. Yeah, but you can't control the, how much other people are playing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't know how much your own ranking is going to move. So if 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 you if you're planning things out in January and thinking about where you'll play in September, where you play in September might depend on how you play between now and then in terms of what tournaments you can get into. But the basic idea, which I worked out a long time ago, and this is this is particularly relevant when you have two tournaments to choose from in the same week, but I think you can use some of the same principles for a whole season if you're deciding which weeks to go uh, to rest or which weeks to play, is if you will be seated, um, it's better to enter that tournament than a stronger tournament where you're not seated um so if, if you if, if you'd be number eight at a 250 that's better than being unseated at a 500 um otherwise you want to enter the strongest possible tournament you can because there's so many more points available if you're going to be seated in both you have similar advantages if you're unseated in both you've got similar challenges in both um the numbers aren't absolutely clear cut on that and you have to take in surface into consideration as well because i mean maybe for ann lee it's better to have a weaker hardcore tournament than a, a a clay core tournament with more points available i don't know um but generally pick the stronger tournament the strongest tournament you can unless you can drop down one rung and get a seed that's yeah. the principle i like it well with that in mind give me your next uh we'll flip gears here give me your number one woman on your list well, are we are we asking for most interesting? Are we asking for the one I think is going to make it the furthest? We'll get to that. I'll, I want to get to the furthest at the end. So let's do two more interesting if we can. Okay, most interesting, hands down, is Anna Simova. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been a huge fan. I oh, maybe huge fans overstating it. I have seen the potential for a long time. Um, I uh, 
I, I know a, a guy who uh, was her hitting partner for a while when she was coming up. So I, I heard a little bit about her before she was getting the results and I, I knew she was on the way. Um, and her early results on tour were, I mean, she looked so good and she was, she was so successful at an early age. You never know what's going to happen when a teenager gets sidelined with injuries like she's had to deal with. I mean, there's so many women in WTA history who never really bounced back. So if you'd asked me the same question two weeks ago, I probably wouldn't have even put her in the top 10 of this list because you just, you can't count on that sort of bounce back. But now that she did bounce back and win in tournaments, like, boom, she's in the conversation again. Like, if you want to pick a long shot for number one American woman at the end of the year, I'll take Anna Simova over Ann Lee every day of the week. So do I expect her to be around in the second week in Melbourne? Probably not. The odds are against that. She's probably going to, you know, place Fidelina in round two and lose. But in it, the possibility is there and if it's not this year it's it, it's a year or two from now if if she stays healthy the the forehand is so big the talent is just enormous i'm super excited to see her being successful again first title since 2019 first semi-final for her last week since the start of 2020 i mean after she made that roland garros semi-final and she's someone who had a bunch of junior slam success early in her career as well she had weekend privileges at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. She's always been allowed to hang out whenever she'd like. And, I mean, you look at what she was able to accomplish, really what she's been able to accomplish since the start of the hard court season last year, 14-6 and six overall in those 20 matches. When you're winning 70% of your matches, you're moving back up the rankings. She's back up to number 61, was hitting the first serve extraordinarily well. I mean, Go watch the Pliskova highlights from the U.S. Open. What was that? Third round, I want to say. Second round, whatever that match was. She lost 7-6 in the third. You could tell then that Anisimova had regained her footing. And, you know, much like we talked about with Korda, I think it's a physical thing for Anisimova. She's not the best mover, but the weapons and the actual playing of tennis has never been an issue for her. I mean, after her title run to start the season how can she not be on this list Uh, what sort of seeded player or any player in the draw would want to match up against her weapons right because when she plays her best it's just the ball is on her racket she is in control of the match so I agree like she's I I mean I'm curious after last week what what is she up to in the ELO she's had to have making a solid jump from where she was prior to everything I believe up to number 30 right now in the ELO ratings that speaks to how highly, you know, the numbers think of her past results. It speaks to how these results impact their thinking of her now, right? Like, that, she's much closer to the 30 ELO when she plays her best than the current ranking she has. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, just I have to point this out since you, you teed it up for me. That is universally true. Virtually every player on the list is closer to their ELO rating than they are to their official ranking because the official ranking is, like, by definition, it's six months out of date. So, yeah. Sometimes Elo gets a little overexcited, but in this case, I I don't. Even though those cases tend to be players who you know take a big jump and and win a title without a lot of activity in their in their recent history, I don't think this is one of those cases. I think thirty or I think she's twenty seven in the hardcore Elo. I think that's exactly where she belongs. She's at least that dangerous. All right. With that said, again, rapid fire here because I know you have to go. 
Tommy Paul, Riley Opelka, Taylor Fritz, Francis Tiafo, four guys, and Stefan Kozlov's honestly in this draw as well. Five guys who have been of the same American generation of juniors forever. You know, Kozlov makes a couple of junior slams. Australia, Wimbledon, Noah Rubin wins one the next year. Paul, Opelka, Fritz all win junior slams. I think Tiafo was still the highest ranked uh junior at the time starting that season and wins Kalamazoo over Kozlov wins Orange Bowl you know that group has had so much success together they all seem to be ascending towards the top 30 towards the top 20 together as well of that group who's your most interesting I I think it's Tiafo um and again, it comes down to most interesting or what we predict for this month. Like I, I had Taylor Fritz as my number two guy at the Australian Open behind Korda. Uh, and then Tiafo actually behind Nakashima. But if we're talking about most interesting, I'm always looking for variability. None of these guys are like lock top five players, some more than others, but there are no lock top five players among the Americans right now. That's just that's just a fact, except for maybe, maybe Coco Goff. And if you're not a locked top five player, then what makes you interesting is the potential to sneak in and make a slam final or, I mean, sneak in when Indian Wells, something like that. And whether or not, say, let's just say Tiafo versus Tommy Paul, they're basically tied in the hardcore ELO rankings right now. So they're next to each other on my list. Um, both really solid players. Both have some room to improve. Both seem to work pretty hard and could very well make that improvement. Wouldn't be surprised if either one of them ends up creeping into the top 20 at the end of this year. But personally, I don't care that much about that. That is what makes them interesting. If I'm picking one of those two guys to do something that we'll be talking about at the end of the year, it's Tiafo. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if Tommy Paul ended up making a run and, you know, made the final in Miami or something. But if I'm picking one of those two guys to do it, it's definitely Tiafo and maybe even Tiafo over Fritz, although that's a close one. All good picks. I think Tommy's playing the best. Well, I think Fritz is playing the best of the bunch right now. And I think I will be shocked if we end 2022 and Taylor Fritz has still not made a fourth round at a Grand Slam. Tommy and Tiafo are both playing better than this guy right now. But the most interesting to me of the group is Riley Opelka. Because you look at Riley's season last year, 21-22 and 22 overall. Outside of his run in Canada, his round of 16 at the U.S. Open, and his semifinal in Rome, he lost a lot of you know first or second round matches last year. And you look for him. And by the way, one of my favorite features on the Tennis Abstract scrolling features that you can do first match, second match, and just see their records there. Riley was 11 and 10 in first matches last season, 4 and 7 in second matches and events. And again, his four wins, Rome, Roland Garros, Canada, U.S. Open. Obviously, those are four very good places for him to have those sorts of runs. That's why he cracked the top 20 and is currently number 25 in the rankings. But I need more first-round consistency. I need better from Riley Opelka. His, you know, you look at the numbers for him last season, he holds, I think it was 88.5% of the time. A, he should be over the 90% threshold where the Berrettinis, Isners, Rayoniches of the world live if he's going to hit his ceiling as a player. But B, we talk about all the time, well, his ground strokes look better than John Isner's. He's a better mover than Isner. 9.9 break percentage is unacceptable. If you're under 20%, you are a bad returner on the ATP Tour. If you're under 10%, you're laughably bad. And his foundation is too good to be laughably bad anymore. 
And it's just if he's going to take a step forward again, if he can get to 15% break percentage, you know, he gets to 20% break percentage, he's a top 10 guy. If he can even get to 15, though, just those second round losses become victories. And it's just it's time for him to be more consistent. Yeah, your point about about first round results is exactly the limitation of players who have the really weak return games. Mm -hmm. Pretty much by definition, those are going to be the monster servers is if you're counting on winning tie breaks, you you can't count. I mean, I, I phrased that the wrong way to start the sentence. You can't count on winning tie breaks. Right. If you're Riley Opelka, you can count on getting to tie breaks, but you just can't count on winning them. And that's what makes me a little worried about Cressy. I want to get excited about Cressy. Uh, I am a little bit excited about Cressy, but he's he's never going to break serve a lot, I don't think. And I mean, hopefully he'll be better than, than an Opelka or Isner's break rate. But if he is going to win a whole bunch of seven six six seven seven six matches or seven six seven six matches then he's going to end up stuck in the same kind of limbo that you're describing with opelka where he's going to have a good run now and then we're going to get excited especially since he has a unique game style but it's going to be hard for him to have that kind of consistency and it's going to be hard for him to crack the top 20 i mean for him getting close to that top 20 would be a win at this point but i know he wants to go a lot higher um and yeah it's it's really hard i mean you're right that opelka we has the tools we've we've seen him with the the tools to be a better returner for a long time but there just isn't a long history of players who arrive on tour as bad returners and develop into only moderately bad returners if you're bad you generally stay bad and i mean bad is the wrong word here because i mean they're great returners they're just playing against players who are even greater than they are uh but it, it's it's a huge huge obstacle to overcome it's a lot more common still rare but a lot more common for players to arrive on tour without a big serve and develop a better serve uh, but there, there's not much benefit in Cressy or or Opelka or guys like that doing that because there's not a whole lot of room for them to go up from there so it's, it's tough for me to be, get excited about players whose game is structured like that I agree with you. I will say this, though. A bad returner can still break more than 10% of the time. And to be you under sure 10%, hope so. yeah, that's just, that's not going to cut it. Mathematically, I mean, I, I, yeah. I had a dream that I, I spent a year on tour, and I think I broke 12.4% <laughs> of the time. That wasn't a dream. That was a simulation. You just didn't realize it because it was your, you know, 10,000th of the day. Um, all right. I'm inherently intrigued in Nakashima. I think Cressy should be fined $5 every time he hits a backhand slice in a baseline rally because his backhand was good. Like, I really enjoyed watching it against Rafa, to your point, um, about Cressy. And again, I think all of these players are fascinating. I, I should have said, and I meant to, I hope Ann Lee has a Coco Golf 2021-like season. If she can work in one slam quarterfinal, a WTA title, the consistency golf showed throughout those first six months of last year. If she can do that, that's a win for me. I meant to say that earlier. But you talk about the golfs of the world, or again, Pegula has not had a good start to her single season. She was so great on the hardcore events last year. Shelby Rogers is striking the ball so cleanly right now. Madison Keys lights out against Alina Svitolina. She belongs on this list as well. Plenty of fascinating Americans. I know you have to go, so my last question to you. Give me the lamps. Give me the law. I don't even know what it would be. Lops? Lops? The lops? Yeah, the lamps and the lops. Who are the last American male and women's players standing? I was really hoping you were going to define your terms because I didn't, didn't yeah. know. Yeah, last American you... male player and last American female player. Okay, um, 
I'm going Corda with the men. Um, I mean, like I said before, more variability with Corda. If I have to go with like the most likely to make the third round or something, then it's Taylor Fritz, but I'll still go with Corda. And then with the women, I, I have a hard time with this because it's not my favorite player, not by a long shot among this group, but by far the ELO favors Danielle Collins. Um, so I, I have to go with Danielle Collins here. And and one last thought to tack on since it's, it's not going to be a good answer to any of your questions. So we'll pretend like you asked it instead. The shocking thing to me in looking over the numbers before we had this conversation was the number of American men in the draw who are you know interesting enough to watch, maybe the number of American draw the Americans in the draw period, the number of men is about the same as the number of women. And the degree to which they are threatening for deep runs is about the same. And of course, that's because Serena isn't here. If she were here, we'd be having a different conversation. But it's been a long time since we've been in that position. I mean, since the days of Tim Smichek that we yeah. could really get excited about an American man like that. Um, I think I have... 10 American men playing this tournament, so not counting Brooksby, who are ranked 63 or higher in hardcore ELO. So that's that's the top half of the Australian Open draw. These are guys who, depending on the draw, are probably favored to at least win a round. Among the women, there are only nine playing, and then Sloan at 74. So Sloan is basically in the conversation. So we've got about 10 American women as well. Um, I mean, it's obviously great to still have some strong, interesting American women in the field, and I'm not suggesting we don't because we do. But uh, but the men are there too, which is fun time to be an American fan for those of you who are. Absolutely. That said, bonus question: What are we going to do about Sabalenka? I know. I couldn't let you go without. What we had gone 53 minutes. That's our. That's a record for us without bringing her up. I mean, even when we're not on Zoom together, we we rarely go 53 minutes without talking about Sabalenka. Um, I don't know. I it's... don't know either. I saw there was an underhand serve she hit and she won the point. And I was like, maybe this will work. I was like, oh, my God. And, like, even in these losses, she's still almost – I don't know what to do, Jeff. Yeah, it's it, it's wild, and it's it's not even. I mean, it, it's getting to be yips at this point, but it's not even, it's not pressure yips. It's yeah. just forgetting how to serve yips. It's so it's it it's so weird. So, I mean, I, I said on Twitter that you know that, that we might have thought that you know Djokovic causing a geopolitical storm was a wild thing to have or unexpected thing to have happen in 2022, but it is nothing compared to Arena Sabalenka serving underhanded. <laughs> No one saw that coming. I I don't know. I mean, I, I, I normally I would say I would just expect it to shake itself out. Maybe I had a, cr- a crazy thought that's probably wrong that you know Guadalajara really threw her off since she was not serving well in Guadalajara at all. Uh, but I hope that you know with with two months of off season between the two tournaments, I hope that isn't still affecting her. But I. I don't know. Maybe maybe go back to Dmitry Tursunov and and I guess you'd have to fight her away, fight him away from Annette Kontavite, which is not going to happen right now. But yeah. go back to Tursunov or a coach who can make her laugh enough that she'll stop thinking about her serve. I it it's it's so weird. Of all the players you'd expect to lose their serve like she has, I I'm not sure she would be in the top fifty of my list. It's just bizarre. 
Well, I will say this. If the prerequisite for coaching Arena Sabalenka is make her laugh enough, I've never before felt as qualified as I do right now. That is a job I would thrive at, Jeff. And so just throwing it out there for the Sabalenka camp. If that's what you're looking for, a distraction, I can provide it. Uh, But with all that said, again, all the work at TennisAbstract.com, essential to doing what I do, what all of us in tennis media try to do, cover the sport. It helps fans better educate themselves about the game. Of course, we're immensely grateful for that, Jeff. Immensely grateful for you exposing my drinking habits. I've subsequently shifted down. The truth is I don't drink. It's just like I'm I'm goofy enough. And there's a thing, Ashkenazi Jews, not particularly receptive to alcohol, something in the genes. I read a paper once. Not that that's true, but that's now my cop-out. Um, Are you an Ashkenazi Jew? I am an Ashkenazi Jew. Okay, I thought that would be a really wild cop-out if you weren't actually. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, would make Arena Sabalenka laugh if that was my excuse. I'm just saying. Um, and that was the case. But all that said, Jeff, immensely grateful for all you do anything to plug no i mean like like i say i've got a big project coming soon i think i'm going to announce it the week after the australian open so keep your eyes peeled on tennis abstract in early february um it's going to be pretty intense but until then you know there's lots of lots of numbers still on the site you can sort them and then if you get crazy you can put them in excel and multiply and divide them it's really up to you at that point, but um, tennisabstract.com is the place yeah. to be. I tried the multiplying. I got caught up on the dividing. That's the next step for me. That's, That's where it gets tricky. Yeah. it's I've You know, R2 over R3 in the formula, I just, the dash never works for me. And so, you know, and I always screw up on the cells. Well, do you have Clippy? I, you know, I think I do have Clippy. Who's talked me through, look, we've had some therapy sl- sessions, me and Clippy. Let me tell you. Um, but sometimes I'll ask him questions like, why is arena serve like it is? And he'll be like, I got nothing for you, Alex. And and he says, you know, you need to add a parenthesis at the end <laughs> yeah. of the formula. Maybe that's what you need to tell her. Arena, you need a closed parenthesis. Yeah. Why didn't you say so? That's so, it's so clear now. Um, but Jeff, as always, thank you for taking the time. Be safe, be healthy. We'll chat more soon. Absolutely. Talk to you soon, Alex. Hope all of you enjoyed today's conversation with Tennis Abstract's Jeff Sackman. I said it at the top. I say it on every mini break podcast I do sincerely, though. If you're not using Tennis Abstract, you're just not enjoying tennis fandom the way you should be. And again, you're not going to find more detail, more information available to you than the database Jeff has put together there. So a huge thank you, Tim, as always, for taking the time to come on this show. But of course, a huge thank you to him for his contributions to the tennis community. Again, this is one of multiple Australian Open preview podcasts we have coming down the queue. And of course, we've returned to our bench of Crack Rackets returning champions who helped me preview all of the action. We'll talk, draw previews when they come out, men's and women's contenders, men's and women's dark horses over the next few days. All of those episodes available wherever you listen to your podcasts or on our website, crackrackets.com. Of course, like, rate, subscribe for you to this show, the mini break, Cracked Interviews podcast, and our YouTube channel to make sure you don't miss out on any of our content. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out as always to our super producer Daniel Westoff for the of an editing job he does day in day out with all of that said for our fantastic guest Jeff Sackman our super producer Daniel Westoff and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network I'm your host Alex Gruskin you know what we say hey great shot and we'll talk to you all next time thanks everyone <laughs>